Welcome back to the Anxious Hour podcast, where we dedicate every episode to the exploration of the intersection of human behavior, culture, and social relationships. Welcome back, guys. I am your lovely host, Ara. And in this episode, we will be tackling an unspoken dynamic that, dare I say, poisons the majority of our online interactions and engagement. Of course, I'm referring to the ever-elusive realm of parasocial relationships. But before we begin our descent, can I seriously just take a moment to appreciate all of the comments, the shares, the messages, the DMs, just everything, you guys. I have been overwhelmed this week by your support. Really, your participation is all that there is to this podcast. So the applause goes both ways. I'm so appreciative, seriously. Now, without further ado, let's begin episode two, A White Wedding and the Abominable Black Bride. The following views and opinions are solely those of the individual sharing them and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the producers, the public, your therapist, or this platform. Today's Dear Anxious Hour letter comes from our good friend, all the way in Erie, PA. Shout out, PA in the building. Okay, sorry. (laughs) She wishes to remain anonymous. Okay. Dear Ara, I'm typing this email for the third time this week, and this time I fully intend to hit send. I'm glad that you did. (laughs) I'm a married stay-at-home mother to three little boys under the age of four. Jesus Christ, did I read that right? I'm a married stay-at-home mother to three little boys under the age of four. Quick maths. Wow. Okay, and my husband is a high school football coach and a former D1 football player. Okay. I have always supported my husband's career, even while we were both in undergrad. I've never complained about his love for football, and if nothing else, I've been understanding of the demands that come with it. But for six years and three children into our marriage, I'm struggling to accommodate just how much of a priority football is in this man's life. Football season is intense as it is, but we're barely halfway into the season and I'm on the brink of losing my mind. My husband dedicates a substantial amount of time and energy to his job during this time of year, which means I do my best to hold down the fort at home without burdening him too much about it. However, we went from a family of three to a family of five, all within the last calendar year. Dear God, am I wrong for expecting him to help out just a little bit? I mean, even during the off season when things are less hectic, my husband barely lifts a finger. It's like football is his wife and his family is the side chick. Again, I really don't want it to come off like I'm complaining. I think we get it, sis. <laughs> and I appreciate my husband's work. I know he's passionate about coaching, and it's a dream of his to one day coach college football, which will be even more demanding on our family. But there is just no way for me to manage everything on my own. I find myself juggling the daily responsibilities of our household and taking care of all three of our children because my husband doesn't believe in daycare. The problem with that is, girl amongst many other things okay i can't be a one everywhere true either the cooking and cleaning are coming up short or i'm paying attention to the twins and completely neglecting our three-year-old's needs i've tried talking to my husband about it but he just dismisses what i'm saying as postpartum depression ara i am not depressed and i believe you girl What makes it even more frustrating is that when my husband does help out, he does things the quote-unquote football coach way, which is somehow always the least efficient and the least effective way to handle housework. Like the time he put laundry detergent in a dishwasher full of baby bottles and breast pump equipment. We're not new to parenthood. He should know how unsafe that is, right? 
at the same time, I don't want to criticize his efforts. And I understand that as women, we're naturally better at handling the household tasks, but this feels a bit extreme. I've made multiple attempts to incorporate sports-related activities into some of our household tasks. Anonymous, if you could see my face right now. But my husband seems more annoyed than anything. For me, it's not about expecting him to do anything or give up his coaching career. I just really want more support and understanding. I know my husband loves his job. Girl, <laughs> we all know your husband loves his job, I'm sorry. I know my husband loves his job and I don't want to undermine his passion. But I need for us to find a way to balance his commitment to coaching with his commitment to our family. I really believe that with better communication, we can create a more balanced life for both of us. But I wouldn't even know where to start. Ara, please help me. P.S. Talk to me like I'm one of your good girlfriends back on Clubhouse. Girl, not the Clubhouse. <laughs> no beating around the bush. Sincerely, finally hitting send. Okay. Anonymous, girl. Girl, do I know you from Clubhouse? Okay, hold on, jump in my back channel. <laughs> DM me, let me know. <laughs> Cause I feel like, I feel like we know each other, but let me, let me, let me stay focused as Dr. Umar would say. This was a lot. So first, thank you for sharing. I know that it was a lot for you to share because it was a lot to take in. So you requested that I talk to you like a good girlfriend and I'm going to be somewhere in the area, <laughs> but not all the way with the familiar. And here's why. I just don't know your husband and I wouldn't feel comfortable giving you any kind of formative advice when it comes to a relationship that I am totally in the dark on of whatever the word is. <laughs> so what I will do is just see if we can try to work in some general steps to help with complex problem solving because it's very clear to me that this is a really complex issue that has been kind of layering itself over the past six years. Now, the most important step when it comes to complex problem solving is to just generally identify what the goal is, what the desired outcome is. And and the way that I'm interpreting this letter, it's pretty evident to me that your goal is to garner more support around the house from your husband and also to increase his understanding of your experience and to generally just be more empathetic to it. Now, the next step would be determining the objectives. What actionable steps can we take? to getting you to achieve that goal. I think you indicated that improving communication is one thing you believe will definitely be crucial in just starting to have that open and honest conversation with your husband, sharing your feelings and your needs and making sure that he actually understands the importance of the discussions. Um, so I would consider that the first objective. Um, second would be going forward to create an equitable division of shared responsibilities in your household. It's also fairly clear that you bear the burden of both the household responsibilities and the parenting responsibilities. And I think what you and I can both agree to 
is that an equitable division of these responsibilities, both of them, I noticed that you tended to focus just on the household responsibilities, but I'm gonna lump the parenting responsibilities in there as well. I think that focusing on both um, and having a really clear understanding of the roles and maintaining both the household and the parenting responsibilities would create just a, a better, living experience when we talk about work-life balance but what is your home life balance like i think it would create a better home life balance for you in particular but i would argue for your entire family um, another objective that i was able to extract from your letter is that you really want to establish a consistent and accountable routine emphasis on accountability it sounds like you really want your husband to commit to change and to also hold himself accountable so we've got our goal and we have our three objectives basically the actions that you feel and that i agree would contribute to your ability to achieve this goal and now a really important part of achieving this goal is identifying the obstacles that exist um, what's in the way of you achieving what it is that you want. I think you have identified a few that I took note of in your letter. Um, football. I fully believe that you fully believe that football is in the way of your ability to achieve your desired outcome here. I think that you feel that your husband's work is in the way and I also feel like you feel guilty for feeling like your husband's work is in the way. You apologized for even mentioning this man's job more times than I could count. Um, so I definitely put that on the list. I put it first and I also put it last. And then another obstacle that you identified are some philosophical challenges perhaps. You mentioned that your husband is anti-daycare, which I could understand as someone who is not a fan of traditional childcare environments. That said, I think some sort of compromise should and could be made um, in your predicament where your daily workload, I'm certain, is tremendous. And so that's just an obstacle that I made note of immediately. And then finally, just general disinterest or a lack of motivation. And I could see that you had even attempted a couple objectives to address your husband's lack of motivation directly, i.e. trying to incorporate, and please, please send me the plays, ma'am, that you were trying to run with this man in and out of the laundry room. I really need to know what incorporating sports specific activities into household <laughs> chores, I, I need to know what that looks like because whatever it looks like, you made that man mad. And so those are just three obstacles that I was able to identify with reading through your letter a couple times. And then I took an additional glance just to see if there were any obstacles maybe that I missed. And I've got a couple. So another obstacle I think is your husband appears to demonstrate just a bit of indifference to the fact that you very clearly need help. I mean, 15 seconds into your letter, you mentioned that you were a mother to three children under the age of four. And I immediately thought of just how incredible 
your daily life must be. I mean, my immediate thought was, whoa, that's a lot of work for one woman. And we, you know, until you confirm who you are from Clubhouse, to my knowledge, we are complete strangers. So it shouldn't be easier for strangers on the internet, strangers in, in the podcast world to show you just a bit of empathy, it shouldn't be easier for that to come from me than it does for your husband. One would think that your husband, the one who's watched you carry these children, the one who has watched you uh, deliver, bring these children into the world, more recently twins, which is an incredible feat. I mean, I can't help but to think there's a bit of indifference there in his attitude or his approach to the amount of work, the actual amount of work that goes into being a mother to three children under the age of four every day. Another obstacle I identified was, it sounds like there's just a little bit of, little bit of internalized misogyny, just a splash of, of patriarchy persisting all through this situation here. I highlighted your statement that said, you understood that as women, we are naturally better at handling the household tasks. And I just, Ding, 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 ding. I could hear where the guilt is coming from. And a bit of that is coming from the fact that you actually believe that you are doing a woman's work and that you are asking your husband to step into an unfamiliar or inappropriate role because of your inability to manage the woman's work all on your own. Uh, there is a ton of, of evidence to support the fact that maternal instincts are a total myth there is nothing about you being born female that makes you better equipped to manage the stress that comes with parenting three children under the age of four. Parenting one child under the age of 18 is damn near impossible on any given day. So three under four, really, I mean, we're just talking about someone being set up for failure, if not just some sort of collapse, which I think you actually even indicated you are kind of on the brink there yourself. So... I think there are some additional philosophical challenges here in getting your husband to cross over into territory that he does not agree is fitting for the patriarch. And not, not even bringing this up to solve it, just something that I heard and something that I felt, hmm, this might be in the way of this woman getting to the goal that she desires, to the desired outcome. You want your husband to step in and help you more. However, it sounds like you both believe that he would be stepping in and taking on tasks that are not innately appropriate for him. So something, something to be said about that, right? Next, there's another obstacle. It's the gaslighting, babe. It's the gaslighting for me. Ah! There's something about reading your husband's response to you expressing your frustration or your exhaustion and him dismissing all of that as just, well, you've clearly got postpartum depression because a, a happy person doesn't complain about being stressed and overworked. I'm not sure what the correlation is. I'm happy that you are confident that you are not in fact depressed because it can be really easy for people to kind of talk our psyche into co-signing things that they have projected onto us. Um, and so there's a bit of ableism there. There's a bit of gaslighting there. Um, it definitely presents an obstacle when you are attempting to bring your husband 
into the loop, into the fold, into the day-to-day -day function of the household. And the request alone is being met with, you can't possibly be within your right mind to be asking me to give more of myself to this household. You must be not of sound mind to suggest that I need to do more. That's a very concerning response from a partner. I'm being very honest, sis. Now you asked, you asked for me to talk to you like the good girlfriend and we are just on the border here, okay? I'm not even really digging in. This isn't the final red flag for me. There is a bit of weaponized incompetence here in that you mentioned when your husband helps, what makes it even more frustrating is that he takes the football coach way. He does things the quote unquote football coach way. And I'm also going to need some details on what exactly that is. Um, however, what you indicated is the football coach way often creates more work for you. And that sounds very intentional. There's a reason weaponized is in front of the incompetence. <laughs> weaponized is communicating the intent behind the incompetence. Quick backstory on where the term weaponized incompetence came from. Now, recently it's gone viral on TikTok. And so we have this relationship connotation to the term. However, in I believe 2007, the term was first used in the Wall Street Journal and it was originally phrased as strategic incompetence. And it was being used to describe um, people in the workplace pretending that they didn't know how to do something to burden their coworker. And some other terms that were often heard um, in relation to weaponized incompetence and also strategic incompetence were willful incompetence and malicious incompetence. And I want us to be very clear about why all, like what all of these words have in common. And it is intent. Weaponized incompetence is not accidental. It is a very intentional way of playing like you don't know how to do something to get out of doing the things that you already don't want to do. And it leaves your partner carrying the majority of not only the physical load, but of the mental load. Because if you're not very clear about the fact that the incompetence is intentional, <laughs> that it is all play play, that a man who can remember over 200 plays in a single game, over 2000 plays in a single season, can absolutely remember to use dish detergent when washing baby bottles, right? There is nothing complex or you know it's not astrophysics and if we're being very honest the football coach way can only be incompetent in the home he can't go to the high school that he coaches football at and show up incompetent every day and still have a job there is no quote unquote dumbed down football coach way while he's actually on the job if you've never coached before Maybe a man can pretend that doing things the football coach way means I just throw my hands up and whatever happens, happens. But on the other side, if you've actually been in a locker room with a head coach, you know that coaches are exceptional leaders, exceptional communicators, that they are skilled in strategic planning and forecasting and all other kinds of skill sets that absolutely should translate the same way in the household. Baby, that man is playing you. That man knows exactly what not to do to get you to do everything. And because it is intentional, it presents a problem. It's an obstacle to achieving the outcome that you actually desire. 
because at this point you are trying to manipulate someone who is actively manipulating you. I say all that to say this, boo. I cannot help you solve this problem simply because there are too many obstacles in the way of the objectives. My suggestion is that you reevaluate the goal. Perhaps the goal isn't to get your husband to help out around the house. Maybe the goal, the first goal is to get your husband to understand why that's even necessary. Why that is not charity to you or your children, but that is actually a built-in component of being an active participant in a marriage and in a parenthood. A shared parenthood, especially. That man lives with y'all. <laughs> so what are we saying here? I truly appreciate you opening up and sharing your story. You have taken the first steps towards addressing these challenges, which is acknowledging that, that a problem is there. I cannot tell you how many women continue in this kind of dynamic in silence, again, because they believe that it is their portion as women. Now to you, my dear listeners, you have heard a very brave soul share her experience. And this is what the Anxious Hour podcast is all about. Real conversations, real solutions, real answers. Look, we'll continue to explore these very complex issues as long as you keep sending in those letters, okay? So do that. <laughs> Send in your dear Anxious Hour letters, share your thoughts and your experiences. And let's see if I can help you navigate the labyrinth of life. Come on now, alliteration. <laughs> Stay tuned. Up next, I have a very enlightening segment. Where we're going to get into what a single mother has to say about talking to your child about their deadbeat-ass daddy. Stay tuned, y'all. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Anxious Hour podcast. Up next, we've got a segment that I like to call So I Asked a Single Mother, right? This segment is dedicated to the incredible resilience, the strength and the wisdom of single mothers. And it's way due time. We passed the girls the mic. So here we go. We've got a question today from a single mother to single mothers. And here is what she wants to know. Ara, I'm a single mother and I need a single mother's insight. My seven-year-old son has started asking questions about his absent father. How can I approach this conversation with him in a way that's honest and age appropriate? I'm afraid the truth will ruin him. This is an excellent question and I feel like there is so much misinformation out there, not just in the literary spaces and in the articles and the publications, but more so in communal spaces. Now, I don't know if you are like me, but I grew up basically hearing lie them kids. Whatever that nigga did, don't let them know. Pretend that he is somewhere out there being held back by the government cheese vans, that he is being chased by the mass incarceration colonels. Whatever you have to do, you do it. You just don't tell your children the truth. That's what I grew up hearing. And perhaps the end is something that I added on, but let's be very clear. If you are encouraging single mothers to withhold the truth from their children, especially children who are asking for it, you are 100% factually asking women to lie to their kids. And it is my theory that there is a lot of animosity built in children who receive a false narrative from their mothers, albeit with really good intentions. And I do believe that when women withhold this information from their children, that it is in an effort to protect them from emotional damage. 
And I hate to break it to you girls, but the damage is done. The damage of parental abandonment is not with, it's, it's nothing that you can control. It is nothing that you give to your children by cluing them into a lived reality that they can't help but to see. Your children know that you're a single mom. <laughs> Y'all know that, right? Okay, so your children are experiencing a reality that typically by the time they come and ask you about it, they are looking for a loved one, someone that loves them to confirm their lived experience. They're not coming to you for you to lie. If a child is seven and they're saying, where is my father who I haven't seen for however many years, while you mom are an example of what a present parent looks like, if you sit down and look at your child and say, oh, that absent parent who can't be bothered to show up and, and you know kick it with you, they love you, girl. They love you, son. They wish they could be here. It's just, oh, the mass incarceration colonels and the government cheese vans just won't let them be here. Like, what excuse could you possibly offer a child that's sound enough <laughs> to counter their lived experience, which is rich with abandonment? Do we think children don't know the reality that they're living? You don't suddenly become 18 and realize, oh my God, I don't have a father. No, like, <laughs> I get it girls, we have been led astray, we have been bamboozled. Many of us have just totally been gaslit into emotionally abusing our children in an effort to protect the reputation of failed patriarchs, in an effort to protect the reputation of men who can't be bothered to show up and maintain their reputations in person. We, single mothers, have been tasked with maintaining the reputations of these bum bitches. And in order to do so, what we think we're doing is protecting their reputation and we're really just lying to our children's faces and countering every lived experience that they wake up and sit in. No, that man is not here and no, he is not trying to reach you. Phones are really simple these days. We're not still in the days of Bell Atlantic. You're not hearing busy signals unless you're calling a fax number, right? So these children often see their fathers in social media spaces. Do we know that as well? That if your children have access to social media, they have likely, likely looked up this absent parent. And just cause you might be blocked mama, doesn't mean that your child is blocked on social media. How much you wanna bet your child has seen their absent parent on vacation, possibly out here parlaying with another woman and, and her kids, only for you to sit down and look this baby in the face and say, your dad loves you and if he could be here, he would. Girl, get the, ma'am, that baby can see. So first, I think we need to honor where our children are in the process of this, this is an emotionally abusive experience. To be abandoned is not a one-time type of trauma. It's not a car accident where somebody rear-ends you and then you just kind of live with the memories. No, parental abandonment is a daily, it, sometimes by the hour, children, even adults are reminded that there is someone who had an active role and bringing them into this world who couldn't even be bothered to check on them. Couldn't even be bothered to see if that if you ate on any given day. You 30, 40, never heard from your father. So I think first we need to recognize that children know, children are living this experience and give these babies credit 
for having sound mind, right? Like I get that there is a lot of, well, we will talk about misjuvening next week, but there is a lot of reducing the mental capacity of children just because they are children and assuming that children cannot handle truth that they are living through in the present. Ma'am, I have been abandoned. You sitting here and telling me that I can't handle a simple conversation about it? <laughs> I am living through the experience of it. So I think first we honor their lived experience Two, we meet our children where they are. You don't give a baby too much, right? You wanna understand where your child is developmentally and then you wanna put the conversation on par where wherever your child is. I suggest looping in a family therapist. Abandonment is not something that your child will age out of. If anything, many people age further into the trauma of their abandonment. And society makes life almost impossible for people who have been abandoned by failed fathers. It is very strange. Uh, we have a term for children who have been abandoned by their fathers. We call them bastards. What's the term for these whole motherfuckers who have abandoned their kids? What's the phrase? Deadbeat does not suffice. <laughs> it don't sting. It really don't have the uh, that it needs to have. So we need to recognize that our children are navigating a very abusive world in addition to the abuse that they have already sustained as a response of that parental abandonment. So get support in having the conversation. Be honest, but also make sure that the conversation is appropriate to your child's level of understanding. And finally, I would say understand that it's an ongoing communication. It's not a one-time sit down, yo daddy gone girl, and then you kind of move on. Mm -mm. Again, this trauma is ongoing, it's complex, right? And so it requires an ongoing and complex approach. I think it is really important for us to know that healing doesn't always look like happy. Healing doesn't always look like I'm, you know, just a, a smile on my face 24 seven. Sometimes a part of the healing process is the bleeding, is the bruising, is the scabbing over. So recognize that these conversations will be really difficult. They will likely, I mean, you'll likely have ebbs and flows, right? Of times where your child seems to be handling the communication and the conversations really well. And sometimes the mere mention of their father might cause them to break down. It is all a part of the process, which is why it is important that we are there consistently to support our child through it. And also that we're looping in resources to assist us in the process, because it is also difficult parenting your child through this trauma. And I'm someone who cannot relate to the experience of paternal abandonment. So I have had to go and do some additional educating of myself so that I could really understand my son's experience and learn how to show up for him in ways that I you know, possibly wasn't prepared for as I came into parenting with an active co-parent. So I would love, 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 love to get some other input from single mothers out there anywhere. Have you navigated this conversation with your children? Are you gearing up for it? What approach would you recommend? What approach would you recommend other single mothers stare clear of? I would love to get that insight as well. And just a quick note to all the single mothers out there, ma'am, you are not alone. 40% of children in the United States are being raised by single mothers. Our stories, our experiences are invaluable, okay? So I encourage you to reach out, not just for the support, but also to share your journey with other single mothers. 
okay? Our voices matter, right? And we can absolutely make a difference in the lives of each other. So once again, please write into the Anxious Hour podcast and be a part of this supportive community. Now, we are diving into the intriguing world of parasocial relationships. What are they? How do they affect us? Why do they matter? Okay, why do we sometimes feel so connected to people we have never met, especially in this internet age? It's a little scary. Stay with me. We're going to unravel this mystery of one-sided connections. Okay, we've got a really interesting conversation coming up on the Anxious Hour. Guys, stay tuned. Step into 30-second sanity, a brief intermission dedicated to finding peace amidst the chaos of everyday life. Do you carry tension in your body like I do? Try this to release some of that stress. Close your eyes, take a deep breath in, hold it for a moment, and now exhale slowly. Feel your shoulders lower and relax, unclench your jaw. Now inhale again. Command your lungs to make space for you. Now, exhale. Try this for the next few seconds. Set your intentions on stillness and ease. And when you're ready, slowly open your eyes. Feel better? (laughs) Now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the Anxious Hour podcast, and we are gearing up to jump into today's deep dive topic, the fascinating world of parasocial relationships. Y'all look it up, para, P-A-R-A, social, one word. Now, you might not have heard of the term before, but I'm willing to bet that you have absolutely experienced it in your life, especially if you are active on social media. Now, parasocial relationships refer to a phenomenon where individuals like myself, like you, form strong one-sided emotional connections or attachments to media personalities, celebrities, public figures, online acquaintances, individuals that we have no actual connection, no real life interaction with at all. Now, these connections definitely feel real. They feel personal. They feel intimate. Uh, Think of it as a strong, almost friend-like connection that you feel when your favorite TV character comes on. I know a lot of people had parasocial relationships to various Grey's Anatomy personnel. I don't know why that show just came to mind, but I just remember people being very invested in Grey's Anatomy and the, the going ons of the actors and actresses. Now, a really good example of this, and y'all don't kill me, but the Beehive. The Beehive, when news broke about Jay-Z's infidelity, it triggered, no, I'm sorry, (laughs) I, I get that the wounds are still fresh, but the Beehive was about that action. You talk about standing on business. I mean, I'm surprised that Jay-Z is really still here to tell about it. Now, despite never having met Beyonce, okay, a lot of the Beehive was not only personally invested in her well-being and her healing and her emotional journey post the affair. I mean, they were equally invested in making sure that Jay-Z never forgot. Okay, the North wanted to make sure that that man remembered he did not just cheat on Beyonce. He cheated on us all. Okay, and now after that situation came to light, Beyonce 
communicated with her fans through her music as she often does and the vulnerability that she displayed in the Lemonade album I think just really solidified the emotional bond that a lot of her fans had already. I mean she's talking about very emotional themes of betrayal and forgiveness and a relationship. Beyonce's fans themselves will tell you that in many instances they feel a part of her journey. They feel like they share in her experiences. They feel her pains. They feel her triumphs. That was their child up on stage. That was their bloodline. Okay it's just it is a testament to the profound impact of parasocial relationships especially in a digital age. Now, why am I talking to you today about parasocial relationships? And that is because you are all in an entanglement with Will Smith. And I said what I said, and I'm here to help you guys with that today. This is an intervention and have a seat, okay? The front and back doors are locked and the windows have been barred. Okay, let's get into this shit, y'all. <laughs> now, I cannot be the only person who's noticed that since this whole entanglement with August Alsina and the red table talk that Jada did with her current husband, Will Smith. Public opinion on Jada Pinkett Smith has deteriorated tremendously. Now, initially when rumors started swirling of Jada Pinkett Smith's affair with R&B singer August Alsina, it was around 2017, 2018. And Alcina's appearance as a guest on an episode of Jada's Red Table Talk kind of fanned a lot of those flames. Now, it didn't take long for the relationship to be confirmed because August needed to tell somebody about it. And he did, okay? This man started to drop lyrics and hints and post Instagram posts and then delete them and on June of 2020, Alcina did an interview with Angela Yee, and while he was promoting his third album, The Product 3, State of Emergency, he decided to bring the rumors back up, okay? Suggesting that the Smiths were like a family to him, and also saying that there was an open marriage between Jada and Will, and that he was given permission to date this married woman. At that point, all hell pretty much broke loose. <laughs> the internet decided that they were going to bring Jada up on these charges and figure out what the fuck was going on. All right, now, Miss Pinkett had the red table talk going and it was getting a lot of buzz. That same summer, about a month later, she decided that she was gonna bring herself to the red table to talk about her past with August, and that she did. Now, during an interview with her still current husband, Mr. Will Smith, Jada attempted to clarify the situation saying that the arrangement between her and August started out as a friendship that eventually they became really, really, really good friends, which ballooned into some form of entanglement. Now, Will took issue with the word entanglement, but it is what it is, that's their marriage. Now, everything since then has kind of been one Timberland boot stomp out. I mean, the internet has just decided that they want Jada Pinkett's head on a platter and they won't take no for an answer. Over the last three years, it appears that any and every time Jada Pinkett Smith opens her mouth, people want to one, remind her that she's a cheating ass floozy, 
Two, remind her that she does not deserve Will Smith because they would be a better husband or wife, whatever, because y'all are kind of strange. And three, to suggest to her that she should stop speaking. It is like people just want Jada Pinkett to stop fucking talking. And I'm the kind of person that if you don't want me to talk about my trauma, don't make trauma a part of my experience, right? If you out here cheating on me, don't be mad when I talk about it. That's just how I feel. So I definitely feel like Jada Pinkett Smith has a right to speak to her experiences, but I've been really, really concerned with the level of anger the level of rage that people have been approaching this situation with. And it isn't just random people on the internet. It has been other celebrities. Charlemagne the God got in on the situation. Recently, Stephen A. Smith decided to hop on the internet and ask Jada Pinkett to stop talking after she did a regular standard press tour interview to promote her book on the New York Times. Now, let's be very clear. Jada's interview with the New York Times is a typical press stop, okay? Press stops, they can take the form of interviews, you can do book signings, media appearances. They are all integral to book releases. It gives the author and the publishers a chance to connect with your audience, promote your literary work or your book. And if press stops are done well, they generate a great deal of buzz and build anticipation for your book. Not to mention by having these very personal and intimate interviews and appearances, authors offer a deep understanding of the book's content to their potential readers. So you're basically giving them a live sneak peek as to what is between the pages. Okay, it makes it possible for a more profound and personal connection with your book in general. And again, this tradition of press stops didn't start with Jada Pinkett Smith, in fact, not too long ago, Will Smith completed a press tour of his own. People quite literally lined up to catch a glimpse of Prince Harry's spare, right? He did a press tour of his own and Kerry Washington is literally in the thick of her own press tour right now to promote her memoir, Thicker Than Water. Press stops are a part of promoting a book. So the, the anger, the rage, the response that Jada has received to her just doing a very regular press stop, I think is worthy of discussion. And I kind of had a couple theories floating around in my head when I decided to talk about this issue. I really wanted to understand what was at the root. I mean, Jada Pinkett Smith is not the first woman to cheat back on a cheating man. Let's be very honest that rumors about Will Smith and his philandering ways have been circling the media and publications for over a decade. I mean, I do believe that one of the first cheating rumors I heard was in 2013, if I'm not mistaken. Now, since then, Will has gone on to all but confirm that he is a man after his own interests. He has done interviews saying that nothing will stop him from seeking happiness, whatever it looks like for him, and that his wife pretty much just has to understand because they will never get divorced. Jada has also come out in defense of Will and suggested that there is no way he could cheat on her because she basically will accept whatever he does as long as he can sleep with himself at night. So I wanted to understand it because it was my opinion that this was simply bigger than cheating. It was bigger than that because people were literally responding like Will Smith was their daddy and Jada was their wicked stepmom and that they had just known that this hoe was down low and dirty and they had been waiting on the truth to come out. I mean, people popped out of the woodwork 
ready and willing to jump on the silence Jada bandwagon, it was strange. And so my initial theory, because first I saw a lot of women ready to jump to get their first licks in on Jada and just tell her, bitch, if you don't stop fucking talking about all the pain that you have put this man through. And my first theory was women were angry at Jada because most women don't mind being miserable. Most women are choosing whether or not they want to cry in a Honda or weep in a G-Wagon. And they don't mind that they're miserable in both vehicles because the expectation is, yeah, being with a man, I'm going to be a little bit miserable. And so I thought, well, maybe the girls are just upset, right? Maybe the girls are saying, I would be such a better wife to Will because they think that matters. I don't know. But that was my initial theory. And then it got to the point where everybody was just getting their licks in on Jada. And I decided, okay, the issue here is that everybody, you're all a bunch of miserable misogynists. You just don't want this woman speaking. You don't want any woman speaking. You don't feel like women should be able to express the fact that they are unhappy. Your grandmama and your great grandmama smiled through their tears while they, you know, baked chicken in the kitchen and got their head knocked between the washer and dryer on you know on occasions most people operate with the understanding that women should be if seen maybe sometimes but definitely not heard and if a woman is heard how dare she bitch how dare she moan how dare she express discontent especially a woman who has lucked up and nabbed herself the perfect patriarch and so there's definitely still this underlying twinge of sexism, sexism, misogyny, misogynoir, whatever you want to call it. Just a lot of people hate the fact that a woman is speaking at all. They really wouldn't care what Jada had to say. The issue here is that Jada was speaking at all. And that kind of tied into my third theory, which is that Jada had simply aged into a space of social apathy. That something happens at the intersection of sexism and ageism, where women who were once seen as sexy and attractive and appealing and often had spaces made to accommodate the fact that they were sexually appealing to men. However, when women age and they lose a little bit of that quote unquote attractiveness for men, well, most people are some, for some reason, just suddenly unwilling to make space for that very same woman. And we see other women in the media who have aged into this space of social apathy where people just look at them as though because they have aged, they have lost their position. They have lost their place to speak. They have lost their place to be supported. They have lost their place to be heard. I definitely entertained the theory that Jada had entered into that space. And of course, there are other intersections that exist. Jada experienced a great deal of shaming when it came to her physical appearance because of her experiencing alopecia and the connotations and associations that we make with between women, their hair, and their desirability to men. I felt like there were a lot of ways that I could identify how Jada had aged out of the protection that comes with pretty privilege. And now, instead of this Hollywood starlet speaking to us about being in a marriage and kind of just making a space where both parties could grow and evolve together, but also apart at the same time, 
Here was just this old hag who wouldn't stop talking and no one wanted to hear. And while I settled on a separate theory, which we'll talk about in a second, I still believe that all of these components play a part in the way that the media, the public, and especially the black community is responding and receiving Jada Pinkett Smith. I definitely believe that most women are totally fine being miserable and that women who choose themselves in an effort to choose happiness are often met with anger and rage and ridicule. I still believe that most people are miserable misogynists, women included, internalized misogyny is a thing, and that there is just simply something about a woman speaking it all that is never going to fare well with certain people. And I absolutely believe that Jada has aged out of the protection, the limited protection that comes with pretty privilege and has kind of moved into the age of social apathy where people look at women who are older and strip them of the right to experience their humanity in the way that they once did out loud as a younger, more quote unquote desirable woman. That said, the theory that I settled on at the end of my research was that most people who were attacking Jada, responding to Jada with this rage and this, this very angry energy, that they were simply in an unhealthy attachment to Will Smith. That is my theory, I am sticking beside it. I stand on the fact that the rage a lot of people feel each and every time Jada Pinkett parts her lips is the result of a parasocial relationship that they have formed with Will Smith. And I know most of you are thinking right now, I don't know Will Smith from a can of paint. I've never met this I've never met this man, right? To to my knowledge, I don't have any familial attachments to Will Smith or any distant relatives, and that is the issue. Parasocial relationships are a figment of our imagination. They are a projection of a desired attachment that we have not actually established. Now, we can't always control when and why certain attachments form and fester, and others never do, right? But psychology tells us that people can easily become emotionally attached to celebrities and their public personas, which is really important when we're talking about Will Smith, because celebrities often project this idealized version of themselves into the media, and they can embody the qualities and a certain lifestyle that many of us admire or aspire to have ourselves, right? As far as Will Smith is concerned, we're talking charisma, we're talking glamour, this picture-perfect family, he's got success. And we thought, at least in his marriage, that he had contentment. We later found out that was not the case. But this can easily create a sense of identification and connection between people. But what happens when we're introduced to our, let's say, ideals in human form while we're still forming ourselves, which is when many of us met Will Smith, right? For the first time, we were children. What happens when we are introduced to this very idealized human entity while we are still becoming adult humans ourselves? We can get into this very tightly bonded space with these people where the attachment supersedes the logic that there isn't actually an attachment there. And we can respond to news about them, let's say divorce, let's say death, right? In a way that is illogical and somewhat concerning. I mean, Gail King received death threats for asking an interview question that related to Kobe Bryant after he had passed. 
I mean, people really were sending this woman death threats because so many sports fans have and had an attachment to Kobe Bryant that was at the root a parasocial relationship, a one-sided emotional attachment. And there are many reasons why if you grew up exposed to Will Smith, you likely have a parasocial relationship to him. Now, by the end of the 1980s, Will Smith was pretty much already a household name for most Americans. He wins his first Grammy in 1989 as one half of the Philly rap duo DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, right? And young fans could relate to Will Smith's parents just don't understand. It's a song written about a generation gap that most of us could attest to. And here's this charismatic, relatable, round the way presence, right? He's from Philly and he just becomes an instant icon for kids. Now, however, he makes this early transition to the small screen that solidifies his superstar status. And that is when he becomes the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Now this show resonates really deeply with us when we're young as adolescents everywhere watching this show. Here's this guy who again portrays a street smart teenager from Philly and he finds himself in an affluent Bel Air household with his relatives. And throughout watching him, you know, become a part of this family and explore adolescence, young adulthood, even experiencing college for a brief amount of time, there's this warmth and this humor that he delivers in these life lessons that have just kind of endeared him to an entire generation. Now, once a week, you have millions of impressionable viewers sitting down and watching Will Smith navigate these relatable issues that sometimes your parents aren't talking to you about, right? Like fatherlessness, gang violence, bullying, drug use, dating, sex, all of this stuff. And these qualities combined with Will Smith's magnetic personality created this really unique bond between him and a lot of us guys while we were young viewers. We were becoming attached to this man in a way that was just not healthy. And it made Will not just a celebrity, but a makeshift mentor, almost a symbol of guidance for young fans during our most formative years. This is how parasocial relationships begin. Now, Will's continued success in film and music and philanthropy just kind of further strengthen this attachment. Here we are making this connection to his on-screen performance and the acts, the very public behavior that we see Smith engaging in. It makes the connection even more profound. We feel like this guy is exactly who he says he is. Will Smith on the screen is the Will Smith that we know and love in reality. When the reality is we don't know this man at all. Okay, now for many, this attachment continued to build. We aged alongside Will Smith. We started watching his films. We watched him grow from a beloved bachelor to a married father of two. And of course he has his hot wife that a lot of guys want. And Will kind of lines his Hollywood career with films that reinforce this squeaky clean image. He maintained this image in the public eye. Okay, once again, that's the, the consistency that solidifies the attachment. We're watching someone who appears to be exactly who we watched him be on the big screen. A hardworking, dedicated family man who overcame countless relatable challenges on his road to stardom. And so we feel like his stardom is rightfully deserved. Happiness is owed to this man. And this consistency, this attachment continues to calcify over the years. Now, when we heard about this affair, 
we weren't just hearing two celebrities experience infidelity, which most marriages, especially in America do. We were watching our friend, our childhood friend, a good guy, somebody we know we grew up with this man. How dare this bitch cheat on him? This was more than Jada Pinkett Smith and Will Smith. This was our Will Smith. This was our mentor. This is somebody we watched crack because his daddy didn't want him and we wanted to know why. Meanwhile, that wasn't even Will's actual story. He has come out multiple times and say, oh yeah, I was just acting. That was just, and here you are thinking, wow, he understands my experience of fatherlessness. See how that works? So these emotional attachments we form to celebrities, they're common, but they are anything but healthy. Sometimes these celebrities can serve as almost vessels for emotional catharsis. And they allow the public to experience their own emotions through the lives of famous figures. You responded to Jada Pinkett cheating on her husband the way you wish your mama responded to your dad cheating on her. Like sometimes we are just projecting our anger and our rage onto situations where we are equally as powerless. So maybe it feels better, but it does nothing. It serves no purpose. When celebrities share their personal struggles and challenges, it can even make them appear more relatable. So <laughs> Will actually fostered more empathy. Learning that Will was cheated on likely, you know, calcified people's bond to him even more. But it explains the very irrational responses that people have when it comes to certain celebrity news. There's this intense, emo there's this intense emotional connection that causes us to feel personally invested in the lives of our favorite celebrities. Seeing Will Smith, people are convinced that he is really sad and miserable and that he needs them. He needs their support. He needs your help to fight this wicked woman that he cannot win against. And it is ridiculous. These people are counting bags of money. So here you are experiencing and expressing all of this grief and anger and rage to a situation that you have no attachment to. And it just seems so disproportionate to people who are outside of the fan base. It just seems so insane to people who are not emotionally attached to Will Smith. Why do y'all want this woman's head when he continues to tell you he will never leave her, isn't thinking about leaving her. And in fact, he supports everything that she does. It's giving, I'm here to fight my friend's battle, but Will is not your friend. You did not actually watch Will Smith grow up. That's not what you watched. You did not actually see this man learn to date and learn to play the drums and move in with his rich family. But none of that was real, guys. You do not know this man. And the fact that Will and Jada are now considering writing a joint book should tell everybody everything they need to know. Stand the fuck down, guys. These parasocial relationships don't just affect the way we engage with celebrities. It also affects the way that we engage with social media personas, online content creators, people we watch their content every day and have come to convince ourselves that this is really our good girlfriend, that their child is really our niece or nephew, that their husband is really our brother-in-law and if he ever hurts her, I'm gonna kill him. Baby, you don't know them people. You don't know them people and don't you go to jail standing up for people who do not need your support that way. They are here for your coin, okay? So you can stand down. The very dangerous dynamics of one-sided emotional connections um, should prompt us to reflect on the influence of media, social media, and the evolving landscape of 
our relationships. I encourage you, my very curious and engaged listeners, to ponder these topics in your own life. Have you experienced a strong attachment to someone in an online space? Right? Have you found yourself? I mean, I'm not going to lie. When Kobe passed, I wept. I wept. I really felt like I knew this man. I felt like I grew up with him as a young athlete. And I just know how strong those attachments can be. And if we are not careful, we can easily get caught up in the projections and the performances of other people's realities. Now, I stand by everything else I said. Y'all are very crazy and leave Jada and Brittany alone, okay? (laughs) But that's it for today's deep dive, guys. Please share your comments on your preferred podcast streaming platform or connect with me on social media everywhere at That's Just Aura. I wanna hear what you thought about the show. Do you agree? What do you feel is behind all of this this energy to silence Jada? Ciao, because I'm going to stick beside her. Now, stay tuned because in our next episode, we're definitely going to embark on another fascinating exploration at the intersection of human behavior, culture, and social relationships. It's going to be a conversation you don't want to miss. Thank you so much for being a part of this episode of the Anxious Hour podcast. And always remember, Nilgram, please. Do you ever find yourself carrying tension in your body like I do? Try this to release some of that stress. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a moment. And exhale slowly. Feel your shoulders lower and relax. Unclench those teeth and inhale again. This time, command your lungs to make space for you. And exhale. Try this for the next few seconds. Set your intentions on stillness and ease. When you're ready, slowly open your eyes. Feel better? Now let's get back to the show.